And I'd like to ask you to open a Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 3. I've already given you a phrase that comes from Hebrews 3 and that charge given to our newly installed officers, that we turn our attention, our thoughts to Jesus. And that's what we do when we come to the Word of God in, in the Scripture reading in the sermon, is we focus our attention on the grace that has been revealed to us through Jesus, our Savior. We've seen in the opening chapters of Hebrews, in the, the sermons of the preceding weeks, that because Jesus has been tempted and has suffered for us, he is able to help us when we are tempted. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters in the family of God. We gain freedom from death through faith in Jesus. We've received the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' sacrifice. And so we come to hear the word of God, to be encouraged but also challenged, to be transformed by God's work in us. And so listen to the word of God. This is Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Let me pray that God would teach us through his word, that he would bring us to a place of faith and confidence in his truth. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we thank you for your love, for your self-revelation, that you have made yourself known to us as our creator. But more than that, in your word and through the ministry of Jesus, his, his incarnation, you've made known to us the truth that you are our rescuer and redeemer. So Father, for those that, that listen today with questions or doubts, I pray that they would find truth in your word. Father in heaven, I pray that you would guide us and instruct us, that for all who gather with faith as Christians to listen to your word, that we would leave here changed by your grace and mercy. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. And so we come giving you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. In our family lore, one of the frequently repeated anecdotes was a of a visit my parents took to Mount Vernon. Now, this was before my birth, so this was before the fullness of joy was brought into my family. And so my parents took my older brother and sister, who were young children at the time, beginning preschool and, and beginning elementary school, to visit the first president's estate, Mount Vernon, in Virginia. Now, after a tour of the, the grounds and the home with young children, which is always a challenge, my sister, then a preschooler, complained, I don't know why we came. They weren't even home. <laughs> because you can understand it when she was explained, well, where are we going? It's Mount Vernon. What's Mount Vernon? It's where President George Washington and his wife Martha lived. Oh, okay. 
Because she has a point, right? Every other home she goes to visit is not to visit the empty house. When she goes to grandma and grandpa's house, it's to see grandma and grandpa. When she goes to an aunt and uncle's house, it's to play with the cousins. When she goes to a friend's house, it's for a play date with the friend. It's a little unusual to visit a home and find no one living there. But tragically, many of us are content to visit the house of God like we're tourists. We wander in, but just for a quick observation. I, I just want to look around. I, I, I want to learn a little something, but then I want to move on. I don't want to waste my time with the owner of the house. I, I don't want Jesus to have too much authority or oversight over me. I, I'm willing to show up as long as it doesn't upend my life. And I'll say hi to the other tourists, but I'm not going to remember any of their names by the time I get to the parking lot, so I don't really need to know what's going on. See, I fear that many of us visit church, the house of God, the community of God, like we're tourists. We show up, but not really expecting to be changed, not really expecting to meet Jesus here, not expecting to find anyone home at all. And yet the book of Hebrews has already told us that when we meet Jesus, we should expect to be changed, that when we show up at the household of God, we should expect to find the Savior there. Look back at chapter 2, verse 18. I didn't read this, but Pastor Mike preached on this text for us last week. I start in chapter 2 because chapter 3, which I read, begins with a therefore, and if there's a therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. So we have to look at what came before it. And so what we, what we learned at the end of chapter 2 is in chapter 2, verse 18, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The practical impact of the gospel is meant to be felt in our times of need. When you face struggle or trial or temptation, you should expect to meet Jesus because your sins have been forgiven by the Savior. You should expect to be changed. You should be strengthened to face what is in front of you. And so we continue into our chapter, therefore, because Jesus himself suffered and he's able to help you, therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. We become brothers and sisters of Jesus. We're called by, by the, the author of Hebrews, holy brothers, those who have been made holy by our brother, Jesus, the Son of God. We share in the heavenly calling, the, the, the calling which, which comes from heaven because Jesus came from heaven, but it's a calling that also reminds us because Jesus is in heaven, we are going to heaven. It's a heavenly calling that is ours, and so fix your thoughts on Jesus. We turn our attention to Jesus. We place our hope in Jesus. Jesus is the faithful son in God's house. And so when you show up at God's house, you should expect to find him here. And you should expect him to change you when you are here. And so we're going to look at what this passage teaches us about who Jesus is. First, I want to begin by looking at the, at the titles applied to Jesus right there in verse 1. We've already, in the book of Hebrews, seen Jesus called the Son of God. We've seen Jesus described as one who is greater than the angels. He is one who is our brother. And here we're told in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest 
whom we confess. Now, the language of Jesus as, as high priest is familiar to us already in the book of Hebrews. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that Jesus was made like us in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Jesus is like us to intercede on our behalf, and, and verse 17 back in chapter 2 continues that he made atonement for the sins of the people, that he provided forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. And so we can understand this language of Jesus as the high priest. Actually, later in the book of Hebrews, the, the author will spend a significant amount of time walking us through what it means that Jesus is our high priest. He'll, he'll sort of stretch out this truth. And so it's one we'll see again in the book of Hebrews. But go back to that first title there, that Jesus is called the Apostle Whom We Confess. That, that's not a title normally given to Jesus. But it makes sense when, when we're reminded, what does the word apostle mean? It means the one who is sent. That Jesus has been sent from the Father. And so, of course, then, understanding that, it makes sense to call him the apostle, the one sent from the Father. And actually, that language is throughout the Scriptures. The Gospel of John dozens of times describes Jesus as the one sent from the Father or the Father as the one who sent him. Let me give you, so it doesn't use the word apostle, but it uses the description of an apostle. Let me give you just a couple of, of examples. Jesus in John 6, when describing himself as the, the bread of heaven, the bread that gives eternal life, he says this in John 6, 29, when, when asked, what should we do in response to your teaching? What is the work that God requires? Jesus says this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one God has sent. He's saying, I am the one sent from the Father, and so what is the response you should have? You should believe in me. Or in John chapter 8, it, 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 Jesus will continue this teaching to us in John 8, 28 and 29. He says, the, that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And so in John's gospel, it's clear that, that Jesus is an apostle, the apostle, the one sent by God. But, but the other parts of Scripture don't use the title apostle, perhaps just so that we don't get confused. Because we typically think of the apostles of Jesus, Jesus is an apostle of the Father, one sent by the Father. We think of the 12 men who followed Jesus as his apostles, the one he sent into the world. And so perhaps to avoid confusion, the rest of Scripture doesn't apply this title to Jesus so that we just don't think that, well, wait, is Jesus just the same as the apostles he sent? No, he's one sent from heaven by God. They are sent by Jesus into ministry. But the book of Hebrews has no concerns about the earthly apostles and our confusion with their role, and so it, it gives him here the only place in Scripture that gives this title directly to Jesus. And so one commentator summarizes this truth. What does it mean that Jesus is the apostle and high priest whom we confess? It means that he is God's representative among humanity, and he is our representative in the presence of God. Because he has been sent by God, he is here representing God to us. But because he is our high priest, so he is our apostle who has come from God, but because he is our high priest, he can stand in our place and bring atonement for our sins before God. He is both our apostle and high priest. 
But the passage goes on to, to make a claim that, that Jesus is greater than Moses, which we might think, well, isn't that a lesser claim than to call him the high priest or to call him the, the apostle sent from heaven? Isn't it? I mean, aren't we already convinced of this fact? We, we've, we've had two chapters convincing us that Jesus is greater than angels, and angels are greater than Moses, therefore Jesus. Like, I, the basic logic would make sense to an elementary school kid. Of course Jesus is greater than Moses, except you and I are reading this as 21st century people who have, who have been, been dipped in the teaching of the New Testament. If you were an Old Testament Jewish believer in God, then it is almost impossible for us to exaggerate the exalted place that Moses has in the Old Testament. And so it's not an automatic assumption that because Jesus is greater than angels, he'd be greater than Moses, because Moses might be greater than angels. Angels get sort of temporary ministries that they're sent by God, but, but Moses was the one who interceded on behalf of the people. He was the one who led God's people out from under the, the hand of Pharaoh, out from slavery. And at Mount Sinai, Moses is the one given the law of God to instruct and guide the people. Moses is the one who, who put in place, at God's command, the sacrifices that would bring forgiveness to the people. And so it's actually an even greater claim than the claim we've already heard in, in chapters 1 and 2, that, that Jesus is greater than angels. It's an even bigger deal to say that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so the argument in, in verse 2 is that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus, verse 3, has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Jesus, his glory is greater than that of Moses. And the language of, of Moses being one who is faithful in God's house points us back to, all commentators will, will make this clear, that this is the language of the book of Numbers. And so if you flip to Numbers 12, you, you, you can find this. We are with the people of God wandering through the wilderness. They have been punished by God for their sin and wandering for 40 years. And the pattern of the Old Testament, we saw this as we studied the book of Exodus, is that the people of God continually grumble and complain against God and against Moses, the leader whom God has put in place. But in Numbers 12, things get even worse because it's not just the people complaining about Moses. It's Aaron, the brother of Moses, the high priest of the people, and Miriam, the sister of Moses, the one who rescued him at the, at the beginning of the book of, of Exodus and who, who found his mother to provide care for him. She's the one who, when they crossed the Red Sea, gave praise to God and led the people in praise. Mo, Moses' brother and sister, these exalted leaders in Israel, they're bringing a complaint and rebellion against Moses. And so there is only one person left who is faithful in the household of God, among the people of God, only Moses is faithful. And so when God confronts Aaron and Miriam, this is what he says in Numbers 13. This is verse 6. Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them 
and he left them. Hebrews is picking up on this scene, this direct quotation from God, that God says there is only one who is faithful in the house of God. Unlike the other prophets whom God has used to bring message to his people, God sometimes spoke spoke in riddles. He sometimes spoke in in visions or in dreams. But with Moses, God spoke face to face because Moses is faithful in all the house of God. Moses is the Old Testament example of what it means to be an intercessor in God's house, what it means to stand between the people's sin and the judgment of God. Think back to an earlier account in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. Before the rebellion that takes place in Numbers 12, we have have the people at Mount Sinai. They arrive at Mount Sinai, and God, by shaking the foundations of the earth, with with thunder and smoke and, and fire, reveals himself in power to his people. And then God tells Moses to come to the top of the mountain to receive the law of God. And so the people who have just been rescued by God brought through the Red Sea, seeing the miraculous plagues of God free them, they they start to think, Moses has been gone kind of a long time. Maybe he's not going to come back. But you know what? We have a lot of gold here because when we left Egypt, they were really scared of us, so they gave us a bunch of gold. And you know what? We got a fire, so why don't we... Instead of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain and worshiping the true God who just rescued us, why don't we put all our gold together and we'll make a cow and we'll bow down and worship that? And so when Moses comes down from the mountain of God, that's what he finds. in, in, In shock, he must have thought, I've only been gone a brief time. You know where I was. You know who I was meeting with. And this is the plan you came up with? And actually, when they try and come up with excuses, well, it was just some gold, and we put it in, and out came this golden calf, so we worshipped it. Like, it, 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 the, the scene is ridiculous. And I would have wanted to say to them, could you be more stupid? This is the dumbest thing imaginable. Of everything I thought I would see when I came back down from this mountain, This is the last thing I would have seen. Yes, maybe some of you would have been angry with each other. Maybe some of you would have moved far away. Maybe some of you would have even abandoned. But to worship a false god at the foot of the mountain of God, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I'm done with you people. Well, that's what I would have said. But Moses in Exodus 32, when he comes down and sees the sin of the people, he says to them in verse 30 of Exodus 32, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses, instead of abandoning the people, he he intercedes for them. He goes to God and says, the people have sinned, and God, they deserve your judgment and wrath, but please, God, is there a way for atonement to be made? And so Moses is the picture for us of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, who in coming as the apostle sent from heaven, as the high priest who intercedes for his people, he doesn't just say, God, if there would be a way for atonement to be made, he says, I am the way. That in my death on the cross, full atonement will be made for your sins. See, because the contrast in Hebrews 3 is not between between Moses' failures and Jesus' success. Because it would be easy to prove that Jesus is greater than Moses if we picked other examples from Moses' life. Because Moses, at times, 
was unfaithful to God. But what Hebrews is saying is, in the moments when Moses was faithful, Jesus is still even greater because he was more faithful still. He, he is greater because, because he holds a different position in the house of God than Moses held. Yes, Moses, the great intercessor for the people, the greatest of the prophets, the example for you, he was but a servant in the house of God. That's the argument that is made in verses five and six. That, that Moses has greater honor, Jesus has greater honor because in, in verse three because he, he's the builder of the house and God has built everything. And then in verse five, Moses was faithful, but he was faithful as a servant in the house of the Lord. Jesus, his glory is greater because he, was, he is faithful not merely as a servant in the house, but as the son who rules over the house. Even the prepositions, Moses is in the house as a servant. Jesus is over the household as the son. He's the owner, the heir, the liberator, the one who, who has brought us everything. And so Jesus is greater than Moses. And when we talk about building the house of God, remember, we're not, we're not talking about architecture. And I know I started by talking about going and wandering through the architecture of, of Mount Vernon. But remember, it was, my sister's disappointment was, no one's here. So when, when, when we talk about the house of God, the people of God, that Moses was faithful among the community of God's people, and verse six makes that clear. Verse six, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are God's house. It's not the room that we're sitting in. It's not the building that we're sitting in. It's not the Old Testament temple. What is the house of God? It's the people of God gathered to give praise and worship to God, to serve him in this world as his representatives. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Christ is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. And so you might say, I think I've got it. Like, it's actually pretty straightforward, Kevin. Jesus is greater than Moses. I can draw my little greater sign. I've got it. We're good. Except that remember here, the challenge for us is not understanding what the text means. The challenge is that we don't walk past the text like tourists, but that we actually allow God to apply it to our lives and change us. The challenge here is understanding how we must apply this truth because this is not an abstract truth for us to just sort of clap our hands on and say, oh, that's sweet, Jesus is greater than Moses. No, this is a truth meant to be applied to our lives. We saw that in verse 18 of the previous chapter. Because of Jesus' greatness as the one who endured temptation and suffered, well, then we know he is with us. And that's what we're being told here. We were told to fix our eyes, to fix our thoughts, our attention, on Jesus in verse one. And then verse six gives the command, that, and we are God's house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. In the first century, there was a real danger for Christians that they would lose courage, that they would give up the hope that they had because they faced genuine and real threats, risk to their very lives. And so they might look at it and say, if this is what it means to belong to God's house, I'm giving up. If this is the kind of suffering that I must endure, I'm turning aside. And yet we've heard in 
in the book of Hebrews already the commands that we must pay attention, we must not drift away, we must hold on to Christ, we must look to Christ, we must focus our attention on Jesus. And here, we must hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. And so how does the truth that Jesus is greater than Moses help us to hold on to our courage? How does this embolden us? Because that's the point of the message. It's not just that we know Jesus is greater than Moses, but that we actually understand what difference does that make in my life. I showed up among the household of God and I met Jesus and he changed me. We have moved from the time period in which things were temporarily revealed to us, Moses, a temporary servant in the house of God, We now live in the time period in which the son who owns the house reigns over the people of God. And we're looking for that day when he returns and his kingdom will be seen in all of its fullness. But we still live with the pain, frustration, temptations, and suffering of this life. And so knowing that this household is secure gives us courage. Knowing that Jesus is here with us gives us hope. The law of God was given at the time of Moses to be a mirror held up to the people to show them their sin that they might turn back to God and find hope. They looked in anticipation through the sacrifices that one day God would provide a full and final sacrifice. You and I now live under the authority of the Son who has met the demands of God's law and has provided atonement through his death on the cross. And because that is secured by the ministry of Jesus Christ who is the one sent by God, He is our apostle. He is the the one who mediates for us and gave his life for us. He is our high priest. You and I can have relief from guilt. You and I can have assurance. We're no longer in a temporary holding pattern. We're not merely crossing our fingers and wishing for some intervention by God. We have hope, real hope that changes our lives right now because of the salvation that has been given to us through Christ. We can know that this is true And we can have courage in the face of frustration and suffering. Because every person is searching for knowledge, searching for some kind of truth, some kind of answers. That's part of what it means to be human, to seek to understand ourselves and our place in the universe. But our search for understanding is not an evolutionary adaptation that just helps us survive to the next generation. Our desire for knowledge, for understanding, for a certainty is a God-given desire to, to know who we really are. Do you remember when Pluto was a planet? Yeah. When I was going to school and you made your mobile of the planets, there were nine planets with Pluto farthest away. But then in 2006, the International Astronomical Union demoted Pluto from being a planet to being merely a dwarf planet. And that's because, well, the orbit of Pluto is nothing like the orbit of the eight planets of our solar system. It actually looks more like the frozen planetoids that are being discovered that are its size. It's really tiny compared to the other planets. There are a bunch of other things the size of Pluto floating out in the Kuiper belt. And so so one of the scientists whose discoveries helped us understand what Pluto really was, not a planet, but a dwarf planet. They had to create a new category. It should have never been a planet all along, we were told. One of the the astronomers whose whose work helped demote demote Pluto was Mike Brown, who, who was an astronomer at Caltech. 
He, he keeps searching, even today, the rest of the solar system. He wants to discover what's out there. And, and, and it was his conversation with, with, a, with a journalist that, that struck me when I read it earlier this year, or, la- or, or late last year. The journalist interviewing astronomer Mike Brown wonders, he says, I've thought about why we search. Why do we keep looking for more stuff in the universe? The journalist says, because I think it's hard to imagine the alternative, that we would just stop. There's something very human about that optimism that thinks there's more to discover. We have to believe in something, in making the unright right. Now, those are enormous claims. We have to believe in something. We have to believe in making that what was unright now right. You might actually expect the astronomer, this trained scientist, to object and say, to be honest, that's beyond my field of inquiry. I'm not really qualified to answer that question, and we'll just leave it at that. Because a scientist who who stares through a telescope, who, who understands the universe, is looking for observable data to understand what's out there. And questions about our human meaning, the very, there's, we have to believe in something, we have to make things that had gone wrong, we have to make them right again, that's the realm of ethics, that's the realm of religion, that's the realm of philosophy, and a scientist might step back and say, you know, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. But what struck me in the interview was not only did the journalist make these claims, but the scientist, instead of objecting, he agrees. He says, this is part of our essential nature as humans, to explore and understand what's around us. Okay, now I'm not an astronomer, but as a theologian, I agree. And this is why I'm talking about Pluto. If the search is always up to you, then you can never be satisfied that you've found the final truth, right? Because what if we discover something further than Pluto, which demotes poor Pluto from being a dwarf planet to something else we have to create a category for. You, if, if, if knowledge is only gained by your search of the universe, and God is the builder of everything, so you're really searching his universe, you're exploring his house, but if it's up to you, then you could never be sure. You would just keep looking and just say, well, you know what, but in another 10 years, there'll probably be another meeting, and you know what, Earth might not be a planet by then. You would never have any certainty. But if God's Son arrived and made known to you the truth you need to know for salvation, then you could stop searching. You could say, oh, the Son of God is here, the one who made us, the one who cares for us, the one who reigns over God's household. And so that's why, I, why we talk about Pluto. I don't really care all that much about Pluto. God wants to press into your heart and your life and give you the assurance of your salvation that because Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, you can have courage and certainty in your knowledge. Because I fear that, that too many times we, we go searching for answers from the people who are asking the questions the loudest. Meaning you go trying to figure out does the Bible really make sense on this? And so you Google it, and you find the YouTube channels of the people who are complaining the most about what they don't think the Bible teaches. Or you wonder, is that really God, how, how God wants me to live in the world? Is that, is a biblical sexual ethic even make sense today? And so you go on TikTok, and you find people complaining about it, and you listen to the people who ask the loudest questions, 
even though they don't have any answers. When instead, you and I have been given the truth about who we are in the universe and how we are to live. We've been given commands by God. Jesus has arrived as our apostle, as our high priest. He is the son who has made himself known. See, the one who has taken your questions most seriously is the one who provides the fullest answers. The one who can understand what it's like to live in a world filled with suffering is the one who endured suffering on the cross for your sake. And this is not merely an intellectual exercise. You and I, even when we have the intellectual knowledge, the certainty of God's salvation, we still live under the weight and burden of suffering in this world. And so we wonder, has God abandoned us? Is Jesus here? Is he really reigning over the house of God? But because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, we know that he's able to help us when we are being tempted. Therefore, fix your eyes, your thoughts, your attention upon Jesus. Hold on to the hope that is yours because Jesus is faithful. Moses was faithful in God's house, the only one who was faithful, but Jesus is even greater than Moses. He is the one who has given you salvation. See, we can face suffering because we know that we are sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus. We belong to the household of God. Our suffering is temporary, but the house of God lasts forever. The God who cares for us is the builder of everything. He placed us in a good world, a world that we, we broke, but he will make it right again. Everything is being fixed. We can actually agree with the journalist who says, we have to believe in something about making the unright right, but we can actually point to the truth of the one in whom we believe, the one who will make everything right. So we don't make the claim that Jesus is better than Moses for mere theological speculation. We are told of Jesus' greatness so that we can rely on Jesus in our time of suffering. When we have spiritual questions, we can find answers when we turn our thoughts to Jesus. When we face suffering, we have a Savior who suffered for us, our high priest. When we endure temptation, we have a Savior who conquered every temptation. He is our apostle sent from heaven to take our place. No matter the struggle or trial or temptation we face, we find our hope in Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your word, the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would not wander through this space. We would not wander among God's people merely as tourists looking for some intellectual curiosity or historical fact, but that we would come and see Jesus, that we would be transformed by our encounter with the owner of the house, the heir of all things, the sustainer of the universe, the redeemer who gave his life for us. And so, Lord, for those who have not yet put their trust in Jesus, give them faith today to believe. For those of us who follow Jesus, strengthen us that we encourage, might be able to hold on to the hope that is ours through Jesus. Jesus, who is our Savior, and so we pray in his name. Amen.